Thanks, Brother Jack. Um, hey, friends, in just a minute, we're going to have a kid's message. I'm going to kind of wrap it into the sermon this morning. So quick word by way of introduction. I'm going to try to do this in a kids-friendly way. Um, it is one thing to witness an event, to see it with your own eyes, to hear it, whether it's in reality or through a screen. It is quite another thing to know the meaning or the significance of that event. In our country, our news and platforms like Twitter are doing an increasingly sloppy job of differentiating between here's what happened and here's what it means, or making an instant connection between the two and conclusion before any time can pass. Have you been watching the news at all lately? There's a significant incident in Columbus, Ohio this week on Tuesday, the same day that a jury made a verdict in Minneapolis. I mean, the instant connection that was made in public was, because I know the color of some, one person's skin and the color of another person's skin, we know what it means. One of our most famous athletes tweeted out a picture of a police officer with the words, you're next, and an upside-down hourglass. That athlete thinks he knows exactly what that situation means. Does it make any difference that an eyewitness of that incident said this? Well, what happened in my neighborhood is tragic. It all happened so fast that I don't see how the officer could have had time to do anything other than what he did. I believe if had that not officer acted, more people might have died. Does that adjust the meaning, that one of the eyewitnesses? Does it matter what that person looks like? Does it matter that a girl in a pink tracksuit who was in danger of her own life said just a couple days ago about a police officer, he saved me, he saved my life, I know that. Does that change anything about the meaning of the event, that an eyewitness does it matter what she looks like? This is hard stuff, right? And here's my point. We are wise when we differentiate between what we see with our own eyes and allowing for some time to sort out what it actually means and what it is going to mean. I'm not here to make a political point or tell you what it means. I mean, all this happened in the last five days. I'm simply doing a little reporting in front of you today, but here's what I know. We are wise when we let some time go by between what we see with our eyes and hear with our ears and before we conclude what it means. So we're in the midst here in church of investigating some eyewitness testimony from 2,000 years ago. People who saw Jesus with their own eyes, heard Jesus with their own ears, saw him live and teach and heal, witness his crucifixion, witness his resurrection, and now 2,000 years have passed since their eyewitness perspective. 2,000 years for people like us to explore the depths of the meaning of what happened all those years ago and who Jesus is. That's quite a bit of time to wonder about what it actually means. One of the most significant witnesses, eyewitnesses of those events is a woman named Mary Magdalene. I'm going to invite you to watch a video that our kids prepared with Kara Hackert about what this Mary 
saw and lived and experienced. Good morning, friends. Today, Pastor Greg is going to talk with us about Mary Magdalene. She was one of the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus after he arose. In fact, she was the very first eyewitness to see him after he came back from the dead. Can you imagine what that must have been like for her? What she experienced? Our children would like to imagine that today. They are going to share with us that very story. They're going to act it out, and our words are going to come from the book, Grit and Grace, written by our very own Karen Rivendonera. Let's read together. Mary, in my lifetime, I've heard my name said lots of different ways. When I was little, my mother used to say it nicely. She'd stretch it out, sing song it a bit, especially when she rocked me to sleep. My father said it more sharply. Two quick syllables pierced the air and scared me. By the time I was a teenager, most people would raise it at the end, like my name was a question. Mary, what are you doing? Mary, why are you doing that? Mary, stop it. I had a few troubles. I was weird. I was different. I was difficult. But there was something worse than the way other people began calling my name in public. I had other people, things really, calling my name from inside my mind. The way these voices in my head said my name made me feel worthless, helpless, hopeless. They told me I wasn't lovable, that I was no good, that I would never, ever be anything other than helpless and hopeless. I'd try to resist the voices. I'd hold my knees tight up to my chest, rock back and forth and hum to myself. I was desperate to drown the whispers. When the humming and the rocking failed, I'd try screaming. Then I heard my voice in a whole new way. Mary, people would say, shaking their heads and my very presence. I heard them talk about the shame I brought my family. My good, upstanding family from Magdala. I'd hear them wonder what would become of me. But then one day, I met a man. His name was Jesus. And when he said my name, when he said Mary, he said it with a smile. Jesus smiled at me, at my name. And the voices in my head shrilled one last time and then grew silent. Jesus called my name and told me I was beloved by God. Jesus called my name and told me I was healed and I was worthy of love. I was good. I followed him everywhere. If he could quiet the voices in my head, imagine what he could do for the whole world. As Jesus healed the sick, raised the dead, gave dignity to the worthless and hope to the oppressed, I marveled at what this man could do. His love, his grace, his mercy, they knew no boundaries. Well, up until the day he died, then it seemed all was lost forever. But then, just three days later, Jesus called my name again. I had stayed up all night, watching for the first sign of the sun rising over the hills. I couldn't wait. Even before the sun rose, I ran straight to his grave, ready to anoint his body and prepare it for eternal rest. 
As I ran along the road, I wondered how I'd roll the boulder at the entrance of the tomb away. Surely a gardener or a guard would be there to help. But all I saw was a black hole in the mountain. The entrance to the cave wasn't blocked by a stone after all. I sank to my knees and peered through the hole. Empty. Jesus was gone. The cloth he had been wrapped in lay on the ground. I gasped and looked around. Who took Jesus? I got up, shook out my skirts, and ran as fast as I could back to Simon, Peter, and John. I told them Jesus had been stolen, but they didn't believe me. I was a woman, after all. Just because Jesus trusted me didn't mean they would. So they ran themselves. John pushed Simon out of the way to make sure he got there first. Only when they saw the empty tomb for themselves did they believe me. But they left again nearly as soon as they'd gotten there. They'd run away from the cross, and now they ran away from the tomb. But I couldn't leave. My Jesus, gone. I fell to my knees in front of his tomb and sobbed. As I wiped my nose on my arm, a light caught my eye, a light inside the tomb. I looked in and saw two figures sitting where Jesus had been. Woman, they said, why are you crying? I gasped, who were they? I leaned in closer. They looked like angels, like the one Jesus' mother had told us about. So I answered them. They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they put him. Just then I heard something move in the gravel behind me. I turned slowly, expecting to see a guard with a sword drawn. Instead, I faced a gardener. I jumped at the sight of him. Woman, why are you crying? He asked. I blinked at him. Could no one understand why I would cry for my lost Jesus? Then the man added, who are you looking for? Frantic, I grabbed his arm. Please, sir, if you've taken him away, tell me where he is and I'll go get him. And then I heard it. The kindness, the love, the joy, the peace, all spoken in one word. My name, Mary. And the voices in my head went silent. The world around me faded away. Jesus. It was Jesus. He smiled and reached his arm to steady me. Jesus, my teacher, my friend, the one who stilled the voices, the one who saved me, the one who loved me. He was here. He was alive. He'd risen from the dead. I looked at him to make sure it really was Jesus. It was. Scars lined his forehead. Deep circles marked his hands. My Jesus. You can't hold on to me forever, Jesus said. I must return to my Father and yours, to my God and yours. But I need you to go tell my brothers what you've seen. I did as Jesus asked. As I ran back to find Simon, Peter, and John, to find the other disciples, I've seen the Lord, I told them. They didn't believe me. But they learned soon enough. They'd be puzzled about why Jesus had chosen a woman to see him first. They'd be puzzled about why he'd chosen me to share the good news before anyone else. To be honest, I was just as puzzled. That Jesus chose me, the woman once controlled by voices in her head. But then I hear Jesus call my name, Mary, and I have a guess. Jesus showed me the power of what speaking a name in love can do. How it can drive off demons and save a life. I've spent the rest of my life sharing that same thing. Not my name, of course, 
No, it's this name I say now, Jesus, only Jesus. There's a lot of good news there. If you have ever heard God speak your name and call you, you recognize that you are forever different. There are quite a few Marys in the Bible. Uh, we know from the tombs and burial boxes that have been excavated around Jerusalem that it is far and away the most common name 2,000 years ago. Nearly one in three women when Jesus walked the earth were either named Mary or Salome, the number two name in Israel at that point. That would be quite convenient if we were at the store and didn't know someone's name. You could be like, Salome Mary, and odds are you probably would uh, stumble upon the actual name. There's so many Marys in the Bible that Marys are usually given an extra descriptor um, to help us identify them. Mary, the mother of James and John. Mary, the mother of Joseph. Mary, the mother of Clopas. Mary, the mother of Jesus. The other Mary. And then, of course, Mary Magdalene or Mary of Magdala. Magdala being a small fishing village on the Sea of Galilee near the city of Capernaum where Jesus started his ministry. Here's a picture of Magdala from about the year 1900. You'll notice it is not a glamorous place. It was not 2,000 years ago. It was not 100 years ago. Um, the name Al-Mahdal simply means the watchtower. Probably in ancient times, there was a big watchtower on the edge of the sea. And this was how this particular Mary was distinguished. The first time Mary Magdalene is mentioned in the Bible, it's in Luke chapter 8, at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. The Bible says this, Jesus traveled from one town to another proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them, Jesus and the disciples, out of their own means. There's quite a few beautiful things in this little passage. Jesus' early ministry is characterized by proclaiming the good news. The kingdom of God is really near, you guys. And the other hallmark of Jesus' ministry is that he is healing people of the trouble and disease that besets them. Jesus and his disciples were not living a comfortable indoor life. They were living a wandering, traveling, town-to-town, outdoor sort of life. And even though quite a few rabbis 2,000 years ago for sure counted women disciples among their company, that Jesus would be an itinerant traveling rabbi with women going from town to town with him was not culturally acceptable. For sure outside of the box. And it was not just any women. It was women who had been healed of various diseases and evil spirits. The Bible says that Mary Magdalene had been delivered from seven evil spirits, seven expressing maybe the actual number, probably more likely just the worst possible state of inner chaos and demonic disorder. I love that in the story that the kids told, it's Jesus saying the name Mary that brings calm to her spirit. That Jesus saying her name totally reorders and reorients her inner life, her inner world, and the whole world. That's how powerful Jesus is. That's what happened to Mary, and here's what Mary decided that it meant. 
Mary decided that from then on out, she would follow Jesus and stay with him. This is not a bad pattern for the church of Jesus, by the way, to focus on proclaiming good news and healing. Like, it's hard to go wrong with that as a double-barrel attack, right? Oftentimes, we're more interested in musical styles or political affiliations or whatever interior argument seems to be brewing. But Jesus himself and his church, whenever we're healthy and right on, we're focusing on good news and healing. That's the way it's supposed to be. Mary Magdalene was there at the beginning. Her life turned around, healed, and changed. And if we flash forward three years, Mary Magdalene was there also at the end. Mary Magdalene was there at the crucifixion. In fact, one of the last at the cross. John 19.25 says this, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, Mary, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Certainly for her, three years later, there were other options, other options that would have avoided the pain of the cross, that would have maybe protected her reputation to avoid the indignity of death. But Jesus was crucified. That's what happened. And Mary had already decided that she knew what it meant, that she was going to follow Jesus and stay with Jesus until the very end. Mary followed the body of Jesus to the grave. Matthew 27 says this, Joseph of Arimathea took the body of Jesus, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock, and he rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there just opposite the tomb. Jesus was buried in a grave. That's what happened. But Mary Magdalene decided that she knew what it meant for her, that she would follow Jesus and stay with Jesus no matter what, even into death. Not only last at the cross, but Mary Magdalene was first to the tomb on Easter Sunday. Matthew 28 says this, after the Sabbath, at the dawn of the first day of the week, Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. They had other options. The disciples were hiding out in despair and fear that Jesus' fate would next fall on their heads. Mary could have hit out that the same power that put Jesus on the cross would be coming for her next if she was to care for the body of this rabbi. But Mary knew what had happened, and she also decided that she knew what it meant, the significance of it, that she would be with Jesus even through death. I love how Karen's book portrays the emotion of Easter Sunday morning. That Jesus' absence from the tomb for Mary was initially incomprehensible, and that for Mary it was met with tears and being devastated that she could not even care for the body of this most precious person, even in death. Until in John chapter 20, this is what happened. Mary turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus, presumably through her tears and devastation. And then he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? 
Thinking he was the gardener, Mary said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned to him, just the sound of her name from Jesus' lips. She turned to him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus says her name for a second time, and again, she is healed and changed, and her inner world is reoriented and resurrected, and indeed, the outer world is totally reoriented. Mary's testimony spreads quickly. Jesus tells her to run and tell the rest of the disciples, and she does exactly that. I have seen the Lord, Mary says to him, says to them, and with some backup and additional appearance from Jesus, quickly the testimony of the whole group of disciples becomes, we have seen the Lord. Mary Magdalene is sometimes known as the apostle to the apostles, apostles being messengers or sent ones. Mary is the first one who is sent directly by Jesus to the group that is going to be sent out to the four corners of the world. The apostle to the apostles is what she is. Amazingly, nothing is known about her life after Easter Sunday morning. I think that's kind of beautiful and cool because she's left in the biblical story and in our imaginations as someone who has been healed twice, named and reclaimed by Jesus, and she is left as a witness forever pointing to the good news, an eyewitness that he changes everything. 2,000 years later, I am here as a long link in a chain of witnesses. You are here in Jesus' name in a long link of chain of eyewitnesses who have borne witness that Jesus is crucified, died, buried, risen from the grave. Unlike the tragic situations in today's news, the eyewitnesses of Easter have only good news to put out into the world. Only good news to tell. And that little turn of phrase, good news in English, it comes from this biblical word, euangelion. Kind of sounds like evangelism, almost the same word. In the ancient world, euangelion was used by the Romans to say, I have good news, euangelion to tell you. Caesar has won a great victory. He has beaten the Visigoths in Germany and our Caesar is the victorious Son of God. That was the good news, the euangelion, that people would have heard in every corner of the empire time and time again. And Mary Magdalene is the first one post-Easter to say, I have really good news. An alternative euangelion that has nothing to do with Caesars or political power or who's in charge. Here's the good news. There is a son of God, but he's from Nazareth. And his name is Jesus. And I walked with him. I saw him crucified on a Roman cross. I was there at the tomb. And I have been with him after the resurrection. And that changes everything about the world. That is the really good news. I hope that feels like good news to you sitting here today. I hope that sounds like 
good news, we're too easily satisfied, quite frankly. We're satisfied by the Sox winning or the Cubs winning or whatever sad political party that we affiliate with one-upping the other sad political party. Like, we are too easily satisfied by all of those things when there is really good news that we can talk about. He is risen. The cross is empty, the grave is empty, and there is a wide open door for anyone who would walk through it to join him and be with him. That decision to believe the eyewitness testimony and be with Jesus, that decision is so much more important than what race you were born to, than what your gender is, than what socioeconomic class or country you were born in. None of that stuff we get to decide about. It's all things that were powerless. It just happened to us. What matters is if Jesus has noticed you and called you, and if you have responded to the sound of his voice and your naming by him. I'm passing on this good news to you this morning, friends, because I have it from a good source. This woman, Mary, who told it to some other people, who told it to some other people, who told it to some other people, who I know eventually told my great-grandparents, who told my grandparents, who told my parents, and my Sunday school teacher, and some other great people who have been in my life along the way. It all started with Mary, who saw it with her own eyes and knew what it meant. And I believe her. Amen? I hope you do too. <laughs> Will you pray with me? Lord, no doubt you could have chosen more dramatic and spectacular and convincing ways to witness the truth of the resurrection. You could have put it on neon signs or split the heavens and sent... Uh, heavenly banners that just every person could read, but instead you chose the most humble of people, folks with bad reputations who needed healing from inner chaos. And God, you're still choosing simple people like us to bear the message and be your witnesses. We want to do just that. We thank you for the hope of the resurrection. We thank you for all of the faithful who have walked the path and handed the baton to us and ask you that you give us the courage and the wisdom to do the same. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a closing song together. Uh, Doug and the band introduced it on Easter Sunday morning. It's a beautiful song called The Rising of the Sun that gets at the significance of Jesus' resurrection. Um, if you're still just learning it, sing along anyway. Uh, it involves some new music and an old classic hymn called Break Forth, O Beauteous Heavenly Light. Please stand and lift up your voice too.